We're putting in money into things that are uh, quote unquote, you know, ready off the shelf today, wind and solar, things that are very worthy of continued support. But we're also um, thinking over the longer time horizon about how do we have clean firm generation, right? Things like advanced nuclear, enhanced geothermal, that's going to be key for ensuring that even if we can get to a 70, 80% renewable penetration world that, you know, for that last mile decarbonization, we have that clean firm power that's available to provide reliability to the grid. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Welcome to the second part of our EEI 2023 highlight series. Our first episode featured the keynote discussion between renowned technologist Elon Musk and EEI's chair, Pedro J. Pizarro, the president and CEO of Ederson International. For this episode, we brought on some experts who participated in different panels throughout the EEI 2023 event. First up, we spoke with Robin Millikan, Senior Director, U.S. Policy and Advocacy at Breakthrough Energy. She stopped by the Hub after participating in one of the opening sessions for the conference, Policy Drivers for Clean Energy Innovation, What Comes Next? Well, we're excited to be here on Sunday during our open session here in the Hub at EEI 2023. Our first guest is Robin Milliken. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. And thank you so much to Breakthrough for being one of our premier partners and for your work to help us put together some really tremendous programming here in the Hub. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. Um, as I mentioned earlier on the panel that I did, there's no better time than now to be having this conversation now that we've had historic policy wins and um, we're at a moment where we really need to work very closely and collaboratively with utilities. So you mentioned the policy wins. So we look at the bipartisan infrastructure law and the new clean energy tax credits that were included in the Inflation Reduction Act. And those really are huge wins for the electric power industry and our customers. Coming off your panel, what were some of the key takeaways about really what comes next? Well, I think number one is, as you mentioned, now seeing actually four historic bills pass uh, in the last two years. We had the Energy Act of 2020, which authorized new energy programs at the federal level. We then had the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law, which has about $40 billion for uh, emerging clean energy technology demonstration projects, not to mention other grid investments that amounts to about $100 billion in total. And then we had the Inflation Reduction Act that has $270 billion in tax credits, at least, um, that's projected to go into clean energy technologies over the next 10 years. So it really is a remarkable moment to be having this conversation. I think in terms of the major takeaways from the panel, I heard heard that it's essential for utilities to have that, you know, support in the form of incentives to build projects, um, demonstration dollars that can bring down capex for projects, things like the loan programs office that can deploy a low cost debt into emerging technology projects. So we're at a moment where the money's there, it's on the table, we just need to you know, land the plane that mm -hmm. we've launched. So um, a couple things came up in the way of um, things we need to work on together. I think number one is making sure because we have chosen to pursue fundamentally an incentives-based approach, a carrot mm -hmm. rather than a stick approach, 
uh, how fast we were able to go and how much impact we realized will really depend on voluntary adoption, again, by um, utilities, by other customers. So we really need to make sure that we're working very closely and collaboratively with, with utilities. Things like Advanced Nuclear, for example, that's very much an ecosystem play, right, where they're expensive projects in terms of the initial capex, but hugely valuable from a decarbonization perspective. So if we can get technology providers, utilities, um, off-takers, customers, money, and of course, uh, governments together to really ensure that we go into the effort around advanced nuclear collaboratively, that we're sharing risk among all those different parties, and that instead of just doing one project, we're deploying five projects so that we can you know, bring costs down incrementally. I think that's going to be really key over the next five years. And um, there's also things like siting and permitting For sure. that are super important to make sure that um, money can actually flow quickly. Rich Powell on the panel uh, mentioned um, we're at a moment where it's kind of like trying to unkink 40 different garden hoses. Siting and permitting is one of those really big garden hoses, sure. right, where we need to make sure we can actually deploy projects. Sure. And there was some big elements in the uh, bipartisan debt ceiling agreement that we saw. What else are you all looking for as we continue? At, uh, Congress certainly is still looking at other elements of the siting and permitting that were on the for table. Sure. Well, I think um, in terms of what ended up in the debt limit deal, it's really encouraging, right? We had the biggest change to the National Environmental Policy Act that's happened in um, basically 40 years, right? When we originally passed that law, we had much different concerns and considerations than we do today, right? We need to be able to go much quicker. You know, Rich Powell mentioned deploying something on the order of uh, 1,500 projects every year mm. now until 2050. So we need to have uh, a lot more thought go into how do we ensure that we're both putting protections and guardrails in place that make sense and that you know, we're not overly burdening um, important uh, clean energy projects with onerous requirements. So what ended up in the debt limit deal um, was really important in terms of constraining the time for mm -hmm. reviews. So to do an environmental impact statement, you know, now will take two years um, at the longest. And then to do an environmental assessment will be one year. So that's great. Um, there's also really important direction to agencies to better coordinate together. So in, instead of producing, you know, five different documents, there will now need to be more consolidation, ideally to produce one unified document, have one agency in the lead. Mm -hmm. So all of those are really important steps in the right direction. I think we can go further, though. If you look at, again, what's needed to deploy 1,500 projects every year, looking at things like having categorical exclusions potentially for clean energy projects that are considered kind of pre-qualified and will go into areas where we know there is opportunity and a willingness to build quickly. So th think of things like opportunity zones or brownfield sites. I think we could do more there. And then if you look at things like linear infrastructure, like transmission, that has really unique challenges, right? Because of just the sheer amount of land that you're dealing with. And that is much more of a negotiation that has to happen with landowners. So having some further attention to what's needed for a linear infrastructure like transmission is also going to be key. So Robin, what are some of the specific innovative technologies that you all are looking at or you think that policy must continue to support in order for us to achieve some of our clean energy goals? Well, I think the great news is in terms of what's already been enacted, it truly is a portfolio approach, right? Where we're putting in money into things that are uh, quote unquote, you know, ready off the shelf today, wind and solar, things that are very worthy of continued support. But we're also um, thinking over the longer time horizon about how do we have clean firm generation, right? Things like advanced nuclear, enhanced geothermal, that's going to be key for ensuring that even if we can get to a 70, 80% renewable penetration world, that, you know, for that last mile of decarbonization, we have that clean firm power that's available to provide reliability to the grid. So that's 
a big area. Another one is long duration storage, making sure that, again, as we use more renewable energy, we can quote unquote firm up that renewable energy by using battery storage, thermal storage, mechanical storage, and especially looking at um, things that are really in the 100 hour plus duration. That's going to be super key. And then the last area, of course, is transmission. We think of transmission as, you know, big lines, big wires, but there's a lot that we can do with innovative new technologies like advanced conductors to make sure that if we can't build new lines everywhere we might like to build, we can at least get more out of the existing lines that we have by putting in place conductors that reduce resistance and mean that you can basically put more power through the the existing lines. So those are some of the things that we're really excited about that are on the horizon. And then there are also things like fusion where there's huge opportunity, huge excitement. That's really continuing to put money into the R&D enterprise and of course, um, thinking about what's needed to commercialize that technology in the, um, the midterm. And let's talk a little bit more about Breakthrough Energy. Can you give our listeners a bit of a high-level overview about how Breakthrough got started, what its goals are, and uh, you really went through a, a lot of issues that you all are focused on. So how are you setting goals and prioritizing? And really, you're looking at companies, but also research and development and, and really getting these technologies to market. So what, what really is that process of Breakthrough Energy looking for really partnerships to get some of these things over the finish line? Well, um, Breakthrough Energy really got started in earnest as an organization in 2016 with the launch of the Breakthrough Energy Venture Fund. That was an effort that came together when Mr. Gates and other individuals realized that we really needed to learn the lessons of the clean tech 1.0 experience where taking the traditional venture capital model and trying to apply it to something like hard tech in the energy sector, which is highly regulated, highly complex, highly capital intensive, really wasn't going to work, right? You know, things that worked really well for digital innovations like apps are not applicable when you, you know, put all of those things on the table. So Mr. Gates and other investors launched Breakthrough Energy Ventures to put money into things that really are still at that early stage scale, but over a long time horizon. So not expecting, you know, exits in five to six years um, necessarily. So that has gone really well. It's now, you know, over a $2 billion effort, over a hundred companies, everything from ag to grid technologies. But what we also learned out of that experience is that a lot of those companies really did also need supportive public policy to get to market. So Breakthrough Energy is now a much bigger um, network of entities that does policy, philanthropic work, and um, investment work. So I really think of what we do as the full spectrum approach to overcome the various valleys of death. You know, there's not sure. just one valley of death, there's actually like three <laughs> or four valleys of death. We're doing uh, at the earliest stage through our fellows program work to support really smart people working on great technologies that maybe don't yet know how to take that technology and turn it into a useful product or a business. So we're giving them two years of philanthropic support, coaching, mentoring, access to facilities so that they can take their technology to the next level. So that's really the earliest stage effort. Then um, we have the Breakthrough Energy Venture Fund that I mentioned that's really putting money directly into companies. Again, once that technology is ready and it is a business that is seeking further investment, that's where Breakthrough Energy Ventures comes in. And then at the final stage, when that company is ready to actually deploy its technology in the form of projects, we have a program called Catalyst that's putting grants, equity, and debt into projects that are really at that kind of early commercialization, you know, late demonstration phase where they're looking for advantageous capital to go deploy projects. So that's kind of the the breakthrough energy, you know, support network. And then underneath all of that, we have policy work that um, both thinks about what all of those programs need to be successful, but is also oriented at supporting the broader ecosystem. Because even if we're successful in everything that we do, it won't be enough. We need to bring others into the fold 
We need to work actively um, with other venture capital um, firms, with other philanthropies to invest the amount of money that is needed every year to get to net zero. Well, thank you so much for being here with us at AI 2023. I know you. we have a lot of your colleagues here as well, as well as some really exciting experts from your portfolio companies. So we're, we're really just getting started, but we couldn't be more excited to be partnering with you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Brian. Next, we spoke to Carolyn Amen, Research Leader, Power, Utilities, and Renewables at the Deloitte Research Center for Energy and Industrials, and Karen Cunningham, Managing Director of Human Capital Power, Utility and Renewables, and Leader of the Global Sustainability, Climate and Equity Practice at Deloitte, after they participated on the panel, The Decarbonized Workforce, Attracting and Retaining Tomorrow's Workforce Today. Thank you both for taking time to be with us here today and for really being here and critical partners for us at EEI 2023. Now, looking at workforce, obviously, that's something that, that we focus on a lot for our industry here. But looking strategically, that really is a pretty critical asset for our sector. It really is. And, you know, I'm from the human capital practice at Deloitte and I joke that maybe I'm a, a hammer that only sees nails, but I really do believe that the workforce is the number one strategic differentiator in the utility workforce, probably the workforce overall. Um, you know, from a risk standpoint, we can't say that the workforce is our most important asset without really managing the risk around it and prioritizing the risk around around the workforce. Um, and this sector in particular is going to be seeing huge transitions as a result of the decarbonization, the economic transition to net zero, and even impacts of climate change. For sure. I know EI's member companies have some really bold and ambitious net zero targets in a lot of cases, and to get there successfully absolutely is going to take the workforce. Now, looking back to your session a little bit, can you talk a little bit more about the services that Deloitte offers electric companies? And, and I think in particular, you had touched on the workforce transformation services and how that that can help companies really kind of think about and improve their talent management strategies? Well, we are helping our clients really with the whole life cycle of their talent. We help them rethink the sources of talent that they can hire from and recruit from. For example, what are the skills? What are the qualifications? Where do these people come from? You know, what geographies, et cetera. We also redefine the actual skills that they're going to need for the future. Um, so in addition to some of the kind of critical critical thinking, problem solving skills, you know, what is going to be needed because of the transition to net zero? Are the jobs going to transform? Do they need brand new skills? Um, and then what is the role that the organization plays in that reskilling? We also help to develop creative methods to prepare and train employees. You know, is, is your learning organization set up effectively to drive this learning? We redesign how organizations group tasks into jobs and how employees progress through their careers. For example, what jobs are needed now and in the future and do the traditional career paths make sense or do they need to be rethought? And then finally, Another thing that we're, we're really focused on now with utilities is optimizing how companies pay and reward their employees. In addition to pay, really, you know, what are some of the other opportunities you have to reward and incentivize your employees? And are the benefits you're investing in actually important to your top talent? And are they actually incentivizing the behaviors you want? And looking at EI's member companies, we serve customers and communities all across the country. Are, are you working with the operating companies looking at their local workforce development? Or are you more holistically looking kind of across the enterprise? Or, or really all of the above because you, you need to be doing all of that deliberately. All of the above. And one example I'll give about 
how this impacts the local communities. You know, there's been a huge investment in advanced metering infrastructure um, and smart meters. As organizations started to invest in in the technology and thus the skills that are needed for um, for AMI, they realized that the skills that were kind of being displaced, so the meter readers, were being displaced into really new geographies. So where we used to have blue collar workers in the local community, we now were looking for more kind of white collar skills in data science and those were sourced outside of the community. And so we, you know, during this initial transition about 10 years ago, even started to think about the role of the local community and how the utility really played a role in partnering with unions and, and the you know, community organizations and higher ed institutes and even high schools to make sure that that community was not left behind. And that's actually a really great transition here because we have Carolyn with us as well. What role does equity play in finding talent for tomorrow's workforce and how can electric companies more effectively reach out to those in underserved communities to make sure that they also are aware of and have access to training and job opportunities? Yes, thanks for that question. Um, so we think of equity in terms of spatial equity and identity equity. So to start with the spatial equity, the more than 60,000 coal workers facing the prospect of losing their jobs are geographically concentrated in socioeconomically disadvantaged areas. So power companies would need to retrain around 4,000 employees annually to fully transition um, the workforce to other jobs. And in many cases, those workers could stay where they are um, because of grid constraints. It makes sense to convert uh, coal-fired power plants to renewably powered ones um, and take advantage of the uh, existing transmission and distribution infrastructure. So we're already seeing many examples. Uh, we heard Bill Gates earlier today talk about converting coal plants into nuclear ones. Uh, we also have examples of offshore wind and storage hubs, um, green hydrogen plants. And then the spatial equity also extends beyond the core power sector um, and, it, and its recruitment, sort of the broader clean energy sector. So for example, the U.S. Solar Buyers Consortium includes utilities and others who have committed to purchase domestically manufactured solar panels, which can help support job creation in the utilities' local community and buy-in for the clean energy transition. Carolyn, I've heard you speak about the identity aspect of equity. Can you talk a little bit about that too? Yes. So we also look at identity equity. Uh, the power sector has really been at the forefront of gender diversity at the C-suite level, at the board level, um, but has lagged across the core workforce. So some of the reasons are structural. For example, the gender mix of graduate cohorts in STEM is skewed. But some of the challenges utilities can address by pursuing sort of targeted talent pipeline development. So for women, minorities, veterans, they have existing pipelines. Um, but given the competition with other sectors for digital skills, the industry should also consider more creative options for tapping new talent pools that include over 25 million potential employees and, and then adapting the workplace accordingly. So the first one is offering part-time or remote engineering work. Uh, that would create a new talent pipeline of STEM workers with caretaking obligations and that and disproportionately falls to, to women. A uh, second one is seamless remote to physical workplace that can enable ex-offender training and reintegration programs by allowing for remote training and sort of phased integration of these workers. Uh, the third one is workplaces that 
have sensory rooms, more transparent communication protocols, uh, remote working options could attract a pipeline of neurodiverse talent. They often have unique pattern recognition skills, which could be key to data analysis and other digital skills. And then the fourth one is creating apprenticeship programs that can help power companies tap these talent pools and, and also others who may not qualify because of a lack of higher education. And here at EEI 2023, we really have not been shying away from just some of the challenges that are out there and making sure that we're a forum for discussing strategies to deal with some of these issues. And that's actually a really good transition over to you, Carolyn. What role does equity play in finding talent for tomorrow's workforce? And how can electric companies more effectively reach out to those in underserved communities to ensure that they're aware of the job training and job opportunities and to make sure that they have access to these programs? I'll actually broaden this out a little bit and back up because there's something at play here that is broader than our industry, but that actually plays into our industry. And that is that the economic transition to net zero and climate change itself is really opening up the economy to a whole new kind of category of workers that we call the green collar workforce. And this really impacts the utility sector across sort of all of the subcategories. And we think about that in terms of sort of those who are are vulnerable to climate change. Um, So in emissions intensive jobs, like a lot of the utility sector, um, and what's going to happen with those jobs as we decarbonize the grid and as we decarbonize means of production, uh, and we anticipate those types of jobs to go away. The other vulnerable population are those who really are in kind of climate vulnerable jobs and like agriculture, really, um, but some of the utility workforce could be categorized as this too, who work outside, who are going to be impacted by rising temperatures. Um, and we've seen some of the, you know, the issues that rising temperatures have had on, on the grid itself. The other category of workers, though, are those who could really stand to benefit from this transition. There are three of those. So there's one that is really transitioning jobs. Um, that could be anybody who is doing their job, but in a new way to be greener, for example. Um, There are transforming jobs, which are jobs that are really new work and requiring a new type of worker. And then net new jobs. So if you think of a fuel cell engineer or even jobs that we don't know exist yet because they haven't really come come to be. Um, But all of those stand to really benefit. Now, I think the question is, what are the skills that are going to be needed? And do we have those skills in our utility workforce? And the good news is that about 80% of those skills actually exist in the workforce, but they're not in the right place. So there is what we'd say, you know, is, is a passport of maybe even some of these vulnerable populations into new work via their skills, which is the good news. I think the challenge is that because those skills aren't in the right place and the pathways aren't always clear, there's this role that organizations have to play in helping get them to the right place. So when we think about you know retention and attracting those skills, right, the utility industry is going to be looking for some of the same skills that other industries are also going to be looking for. We need to look outside the industry and we're really competing with other players who were not part of, of that competitive field before. And I think that plays partly into employer brand. Yes. Uh, In addition, the industry could do more to attract talent by overcoming some legacy images and highlighting where it shines today. So for example, we're seeing utilities emphasize the advantages of hiring workers from the immediate community and training them to better retain them longer term. And being trained in digital skills in particular 
uh, contribute to employee satisfaction and retention. In other area, uh, utilities could be an attractive alternative for people who were laid off from the tech industry, allowing them to apply their digital skills uh, while tying them to a more meaningful mission uh, in an industry that uh, may seem to provide a more secure career path. So this is the first time for many in Gen Z, they're experiencing layoffs in big tech, and that's an industry that have been you know, growing, growing, growing over the past decade. So they're looking at different career paths uh, that they may not have considered before. Most importantly, the power sector has a very exciting story to tell and culture to build around being the leader in the transition to a decarbonized society. And that combined with the increasingly digital nature of many of the jobs could help the industry paint a more future-oriented, purposeful, and expansive view of what it means to be part of the power sector workforce. Well, thank you both for being here at EEI 2023 with us and really just for the work that you both are doing every day to help ensure that America's electric companies have the best and most highly trained workforce that they can. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. We then caught up with Aaron Lewis, Vice President and Managing Director of Energy Utility West Region at Black & Beach, after the panel, ensuring grid resilience in the face of threats, a topic that is always top of mind for our industry. Thank you for joining us for your participation in the panel and really for being a key partner for EEI 2023. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to talking to you. Can you tell us a little bit about Black & Beach and the engineering construction services that you and your team are providing? Yes, uh, we, uh, we've been an engineering company since 1915, so over 100 years providing services into this sector, the energy utility sector. And uh, in that time, our services have expanded beyond engineering to include procurement construction, consulting, advisory type services, and and uh, even expanded to where we're, we're, we're able to do some O&M as well. And you have a global presence as well, right? That's correct. Our headquarters is in Kansas City, but we have projects all, all around the world, just certainly in Europe and uh, Southeast Asia, primarily, other than the United States. Coming out of the session you were just on, and ensuring grid resilience is such an important topic for EEI or member companies, really our nation, and it is top of mind. And I imagine you bring some interesting perspective being able to work in so many systems across the world. Absolutely. And uh, thinking about the question around what we're seeing with clients, it, that's one thing I can say with certainty that I, I can't think of a client that doesn't have customer focus on their front page of their website. Their, their businesses are driven by customers and making sure that they deliver reliable, resilient power to them under all conditions is, is job one. And as we engage with them, it does come back to that fundamental mission of keeping the lights on. So our services have been built up around that to make sure that we can offer them diverse perspectives on ways of, of planning that work and implementing new technology that's going to allow them to make their, their grid more resilient, more reliable, but, but ideally at a price point that, that makes sense, that's prudent, because they always have that, that check in place anytime they develop new opportunities. So I know our sector takes kind of an all-hazards approach, really understanding all the different threat vectors, but doing what they can to make sure that they're minimizing impact, any disruption to customers. Are there any particular threats that keep you up at night? I know that's kind of overused, but what what really are those top of mind ish, uh, issues for you based on your experience, but also with some sure. of the members that you're, you're working with? What's interesting, you, certainly the threats are uh, very present and talked about, but with the grid itself right now, the, the predominant concern still to this day is aging infrastructure tied with the implementation or integration of renewables or this non-dispatchable type source. We learned this through an annual strategic directions report we conduct and that was the results we saw last year. Now this year we will 
verify that again, but I would expect that really to be at the very top like it has been in years past, knowing that the majority of the transmission grid is still working with assets that are over 30 years old and uh, you know, circuit breakers uh, as well as transmission line assets that uh, you know just due to their age are not as resilient as they were initially designed to be because of uh, and, and unable to withstand environmental events that uh, we're seeing increasing in, in uh, consequence and regularity. Were there any particular key themes or particular points made during the panel discussion that you participated in that were surprising to you or, or was kind of welcome for you to hear others articulating it? Absolutely. And one of the things, uh, you know, a lot of the messages resonated with things that we're seeing as well. So there, it, it feels good to know that we're, we've got a good alignment with our understanding where our clients are at. I think one of the most important takeaways I had is despite all the efforts we make to try to protect the grid, to make it secure from physical or cyber threats, for example, at the end of the day, you can't, it, it, it's impossible to protect against everything. Uh, so when that happens, we've always got to remember that despite all the technology, all the effort that's gone into designing a system that's resilient, that has backup, it, it really is going to come down for that, that bad day when it does happen to the people that are going to be responding and the process that they've got in place to follow it. So with that in mind, uh, we really focus on when, when you're trying to plan for that and help clients understand how they would respond to a specific type of event, make sure that it's something that's practical, that, that you can get the resources for, that it is something that is practiced. We see this in the military or in first responders, how important it is to practice and train until you physically have gone through that response simulation. It doesn't draw out some of the things that will happen. So um, that, that's another important aspect of response. And the last part is, you know, intentionally trying to keep it simple so that it, it is, you know, you never know when it's going to happen or who's going to be involved, but you want to try to be as simple as possible for those human responders to be able to help get back up on your feet with whatever that grid incident was. And as America's Electric Company has continued to make pretty significant investments in the grid, I think, looking back over the past decade or so, it's been well above $100 billion a, a year, and that's kind of across all CapEx. I think last year was above $150 billion, and that's with a B there. But I know it's more than just a money question. Are, are are there other policies or investments or action that stakeholders are working through that really will help us make the the investments or do the work to enhance the resilience of the grid even more. It's interesting because you know tremendous amounts of investment have been being made into our grid for quite some time. And the way I look at it today, especially with the IRA and the Jobs Act, the, the money is there. Whether it's something that they uh, get through loan or they they develop with their own capital, it's not the lack of funding that's keeping things from going forward. It really comes back to resources and supply chain. You know, as an integrator like we are. The are actually putting projects into service, building things, coming up with the engineering teams to do the design, and then having a supply chain that allows you to get things there when you need it, knowing that right now there's so much investment and we're seeing disruptions still to this day, even after COVID has kind of subsided, that impact our ability to get work done in a reasonable schedule. And then lastly, the construction assets, you know, the resources are in high demand and getting them to a job site where they can implement whatever you've designed is so critical. And so clients have recognize this this challenge and certainly reaching out a lot more in advance to, to align with partners to give you the chance to 
plan for and ramp up because without doing that, you know, there's there's few, even the biggest players in the industry are, are busy. And so it's been interesting how that market dynamic has changed the way that clients engage with contractors today because it is a partnership. We both succeed or fail together. So that's something I've noticed in the last couple of years that's been really pronounced. And with all the work that is underway really across the country and the world, what is the, the demand on workforce been like in terms of having those highly skilled folks? And uh, it's June, so any uh, words of wisdom for graduating seniors heading oh, off boy. to college? <laughs> well, the good news is a lot of what the energy industry is going through, this is exciting stuff. I mean, uh, when I graduated 30 years ago and started at Black & Beach, you know, I, I would honestly say that there wasn't a lot of my colleagues that were looking to get into the utility industry. I mean, back then, S Silicon Valley was the place to be, you know, it came to cutting edge, but that's all changed now because of these challenges that we're facing and the importance of electricity. It's increased by the fact that we're talking renewables integration and things that really resonate with younger professionals coming out of school today, wanting to make a difference in the world, recognizing that they could play a role in helping us offset the climate change that, that you know we're, we're experiencing. And so from the standpoint of schools and colleges graduating the talent, uh, it, it certainly increased the amount of people entering the utility industry, but uh, I, I still don't feel uh, we're, we have nearly enough engineers and technicians and consulting type professionals to help get all this work done. And so we got to keep pumping effort into the STEM programs to, to make sure at the very young age that people recognize this is a great career to be in. And again, it's, it's a career that you really can make a difference in the world just through you know, your profession. And I think increasingly we're, we're seeing and really recognizing just the value of the energy grid really as a platform for whether it's deep emission reductions from our sector, helping other sectors reduce yeah. their emissions. It's just such an important really backbone of our economy. And just thank you to the work that you and your team does to, to help maintain, enhance, and build out and, and everything really to get the grid to where it needs to be to help us deliver a resilient, clean energy future. Yeah, thank you. And you're exactly right. We all just need to be out without power for an hour or a day to re recognize how impactful that is to us. And because it, it ties into water and communications and, you know, getting fuel and financial transactions. I mean, it, it is all connected. And, you know, electricity is just foundational to the way of life we have. And not just in the United States, but many countries around the world. So, so making sure that we're doing things now to keep it as resilient and reliable as we've been able to enjoy, knowing that you know, Mother Nature's throwing a lot of new things at us. Uh, it's impossible to predict all of it, but you know, that's what makes it you know, interesting and a great career for, for engineers to try to figure out and solve those problems. And like you mentioned before, there's a lot of exercising and drilling that happens, so it's fun to break things when it's not a real scenario, and then helping work with firms like yours to make sure we're ready when the real thing happens. Absolutely, a large part of engineering is through failure, you know, because we're, we're trying things that have never been done before, and so being able to have an industry that, that that's allowed, that we're developing technologies that are first of a kind and, and knowing that maybe Rev 1 of this thing is not going to be what we need, but by the time we get to Rev 5, you know, we'll have a product or a, an application that really does make a difference to solve a problem. Uh, that's really what engineering is all about and something that uh, the utility industry certainly has lots of opportunities to exploit. Aaron, thank you for making some time for us today and for being such a, a great partner for us here at EI 2023. My pleasure. Thank you. Next, we stopped by the coffee bar in the hub, which was sponsored by GridX, to talk to GridX Vice President of Marketing, Brad Langley, about his company and his experience at EEI 2023. 
coming to you all live again from the Hub at EEI 2023. We're excited to have our next guest with us here today, Brad Langley. Thanks for making some time for us today. Yeah, Brian, thank you very much. I produce my own podcast called With Great Power, so it's kind of nice to be on the other side of the microphone and answer the questions rather than ask them. So thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And I, I believe you all are sponsoring the coffee, so thank you for keeping us caffeinated as we uh, work through the terrific programming we have underway. So for our listeners, can you share a little bit about the work that GridX is doing and some of your priorities, really really just the, the innovative work that your team's doing these days. Yeah, happy to. So GridX is the leading enterprise rate platform provider to utilities. And what that means is we help utilities design, implement, market, and build complex rate structures. So we're starting to see a movement towards utilities offering their customers time-varying rates, like time-of-use rates or EV rates. And we work with them to help more people get on those successfully. And you know, from a CX standpoint, this is important because energy customers are used to paying their bill, using energy when they want to, and not having to really think about it too much. Well, when you're raising the cost of electricity during certain times of the day, you know, it can be kind of complex to know when and when not to use energy and also what is the best rate plan for you. So we really try to make that uh, a lot more evident uh, by communicating in terms they care about, which was the bill impact. So if they use energy at different times, what's that going to do to their bill? Uh, We are also working really hard to get more utility customers into DERS. So whether it's an EV in their garage, solar on their rooftop, a heat pump, and helping them understand the cost ramifications of that. Because, you know, it's one thing to buy an EV and you think to yourself, I'm going to save on gas. But if you don't charge that at the optimal time, you'll end up spending more on electricity than you would otherwise. So a buzzword we always hear is optimizing programs, optimizing the customer experience. It sounds like a lot of what your company is offering is really looking to tailor those programs and empower companies to really optimize the offerings to their customers. Absolutely. And just make it easier for customers to understand what they're opting into and then manage that going forward. And I think the example of those time of use rates, if a utility is rolling out time of use rates, just making it very evident what is the best rate plan for them. Because in many cases, utility do like four or five, six different rate plans, and they have to understand what's best for them. And the best way to do that is, is to really communicate that in dollars and cents, what's the bill impact going to be. Sure. And I think many of our listeners are familiar with time of use rates, but there are certain times of the day where everyone gets home from work and turns on their air conditioner, flips on the lights, turns on the oven to preheat for dinner. Those are times of day when there's high use on the system. So yep. you're encouraging maybe customers to do that load of laundry or the dishwasher a little earlier in the day or later in the day, but there's value to the system and figuring out a way to compensate customers who are helping out during those times of high demand. So Southern California, Edison's a customer of ours, and they've seen TOU rates be able to shift demand out of the peak. In fact, in August 2022, they were able to shift 75 megawatts of demand, which equaled their third largest DR program at that time. And that is impressive. I don't think people necessarily think of rates as a demand flexibility mechanism, but they certainly can be. And we saw that play out with SCE. So I imagine a company that's looking to optimize a lot of these operations also has some insights into some trends that are out there. Is there anything interesting that you see on the customer side with trends or maybe trends with what electric companies are are seeking, knowing what capabilities you offer? Yeah, definitely a couple. I think electrification is a big one. Obviously, we're seeing lots of states mandate more EVs. And when those EVs do come onto the grid, it's going to tax the grid. And so being able to make sure the customers know the optimal times to charge those EVs, but it doesn't stop at EVs. We're seeing heat pumps become more prevalent. We're 
seen a move to maybe eliminate gas stoves and have more induction cooktops. And so being able to communicate the cost impact of those is really important. Um, I think on the utility side, one trend that we're seeing is reducing O&M. Cost is always an important factor. And so as we think about that, the utility has a customer information system. It's a very expensive piece of technology, but it does very vital work for the utility, you know, kind of serving as its cash register. Uh, One thing that may not be widely known is that in order for a CIS to support complex rates, to implement, to, to, to model, to bill, it actually in some cases requires millions of dollars and months of time to do that. And so we had one customer tell us it cost them $8 million to implement a low income rate in their CIS. Another one said it took $6 million annually to manage complex billing. That's a lot of money that Gridex can come in with our solution and reduce that significantly through our add-on product, which does just that in far less time and for far less money. And so I think the ability to help utilities reduce O&M and show value in the process is really important and working hard to uh, be able to provide that value to utilities. And that actually segues nicely with just some of the focus issues we've had here at EI 2023. Affordability for sure, making sure that we're meeting evolving needs of customers in an affordable way, making sure the clean energy transition is affordable for customers. And of course, making sure our our sector is leading the way and reducing carbon emissions, especially like you said, with the focus on electrification, we want to make sure that we're using clean electricity to drive down emissions in other sectors of the economy. So um, again, going back to kind of the affordable way of reducing emissions, are there particular technology solutions or particular programs you think are are helping with those two pieces? Yeah, I mean, I think rates are absolutely helping with that and these time varying rates, you know, not to go back to the EV example again, but, you know, if you're charging your car during times electricity is both expensive and potentially dirty if the system is being taxed, that's very expensive for the customer and their bills are going to skyrocket. We're actually seeing instances too where I think there's been a historical concern that time varying rates actually aren't good for low income customers, that it may unfairly tax them. Uh, We've seen examples where that's not the case, where they can save on their utility bills without being, you know, too inconvenient during times of of inclement heat. So um, yeah, we're seeing a lot of examples where I think rates is helping fill that gap of both uh, reducing customer bills and also aiding in decarb. And, you know, we're big believers. Our our, uh, our kind of tagline slash mission statement at Gridex is to be a clean energy catalyst. And we think that rates can be a real strong uh, provider of decarbonization by working with customers to understand that, you know, when they use energy is just as, if not more important, that how much they use. And that's a fundamental shift in thinking, I think, for people. Uh, and so rates you know, can really play an important part in demand flexibility and shifting that usage out of the peak. And you mentioned just impact potentially on low-income customers. And I know there's been a lot of work underway uh, assessing programs available to low- and moderate-income customers, especially coming out of the pandemic. We, we just know that bills across the board have, have been yep. an, a challenge for a lot of homes and businesses. Are your offerings things that also help kind of evaluate the impact on customers in real time. I imagine you launch a program, you don't know exactly how it's going to go. Does it kind of provide feedback and insight so that you really do get an understanding of what the impact is on customers in case you have to course? Yeah, 100%. In fact, one of the key selling points of what we do is we can do whole population analysis. So we can work with utilities to determine how rates are going to impact basically everybody in their service territory. And that's what fuels a lot of that rate analysis, rate comparison that they do. We actually Uh, Not a low-income story per se, but we had one customer that had done a time-of-use rollout, and they didn't do whole population analysis. 
And one of the unintended consequences was churches were getting really high demand charges on Sundays because they were using a lot of electricity and getting charged for that. And had that whole population analysis been done, they could have identified the fact that churches are going to spike their usage on a certain day or a certain time of day and been able to offer them a rate that could have optimized their spend. So uh, that is one of the key things that we work with our utility customers to do is provide that whole population analysis so they know how everybody will be impacted and then also how their revenue will be impacted as well. Well, thank you so much for being here with us at EI 2023. And I mean, it really is a critical place to have this conversation because we as an association work really hard to make sure that we're taking lessons learned like what you just explained with the churches and and really letting other companies understand uh, like whether it's pain points or just innovations that they've learned. We, we really work hard to socialize lessons learned and, and increased uh, ability to meet the needs of our customers. Yeah, you guys do a great job, Brian. Thanks for having me and thanks for having us here. Uh, we're proud to sponsor EEI and be involved. Um, this is my favorite show of the year. I think just the quality of people we get to interact with, the kinds of topics that are covering your panels. And I don't know uh, who sold their soul, but to get a lineup of Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Deion Sanders, and others as keynotes uh, this year, is really impressive. So kudos to you guys for putting on a a heck of a show. Well, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.